The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. All right, so the big show here. I finally found myself some Tito's handmade vodka that you keep talking about. Excellent. So uh, I got myself a nice uh, yes. fresh martini for tonight. Uh-huh. Have you tried this before? Oh, that's smooth. Oh, it's very smooth. <laughs> By the end of this show. <laughs> man, oh, man. I, uh, I don't have anything with me today because I had a very tough day working on stuff and I needed a mid-afternoon pick-me-down. <laughs> so you took some downers? <laughs> I needed a little bit of my uh, my Kazakhstan vodka just to make it a little bit easier to get through the afternoon. Oh, so you pre-gamed is what you're telling me. I did. I had to. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Chris Hadfield's songs from a tin can. We'll find out from NASA's most popular astronaut how he recorded Space Oddity amid the whir of the International Space Station. Chicago leads the nominations for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've got the voting link for you to fix this obvious mistake. And oh my god, the girl. <laughs> and oh my god, the girl behind the famous Goosebumps. Goosebumps. Yeah. yeah. And oh my god, the girl behind the famous Goosebumps meme speaks to Vanity Fair about the viral sensation. Plus how you can win a $400 pair of headphones from Parrot. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. One of my heroes came by the Business News Network the other day, and I was so happy to be able to sit down with Commander Chris Hadfield. I saw this, and I was very, very jealous. When I was a kid, probably you too, but when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut in the worst possible way. And I remember my mom and dad letting me down very gently, saying, son, it's only Americans that can be astronauts. And I was absolutely destroyed. So when guys like Mark Garneau mm -hmm. and Roberta Bondar started coming up, it was like fantastic. I, and it, when... when Chris Hadfield came along. Not only was he a Canadian, not only was he the commander of the International Space Station and the veteran of a couple of space shuttle flights, but he was also a music nerd. So I called my parents when this new album, Songs from a Tin Can, came out, and I said, see, you're wrong. <laughs> we talked for about 11 minutes or so, which is about 60 additional seconds beyond our window of opportunity. And I didn't care who got mad at me for going late. But uh, we talked about a bunch of different things from the fact that we found flowing water on Mars and what it means uh, for space exploration and the possibility of us actually living on Mars sooner rather than later. But uh, when it came to the music side of things with songs from a tin can, the first thing I asked him was, 
Who taught you how to play guitar? <laughs> uh, my brother and I taught each other to play guitar. I, we bought one together when I was about nine or ten, and we've written songs together and played guitar our whole lives. And and my brother Dave and I wrote uh, several of the songs. I wrote one with my son Evan, mm -hmm. and some written myself. And it's just to me a way to explain it personally that maybe gives other people a little insight into uh, what it's actually like to be living off the planet. See, I, I'm disappointed to learn that you learned at age nine or ten. I've got a daughter who's nine, very yeah. into space, very into music, but it, usually a guy picks up the guitar at 15 because he's trying to pick up <laughs> girls. Well, I, I, I just thought uh, this is a, a wonderful way. My mom's a piano player. Uh, it's portable. I've taken a guitar with me everywhere I've gone in life. I mean, everywhere. And it's it. I, I've sat with people who don't speak one word of English, and yet we could pass a guitar back and forth and make each other laugh. You know, make each other missed up just because of the uh, the expressiveness of music itself. So it's just a natural that there's a, there's a Canadian guitar up on the International Space Station. How is it possible to have recorded space on? on the ISS. I can only imagine the fan noise and the whizzing. <laughs> well, I, I, like, like most music videos, I recorded the actual vocal track in, in, in a little quiet, it's not a studio, but it was my sleep pod in there. I turned the fan down to the minimum, just on the edge of suffocation level, got as quiet as I could and did the vocals. And then for the video, of course, I floated around just, just singing along with myself. Uh, it is a noisy place, but it's also an immensely inspirational place. And Bowie himself said he just, he loved that interpretation, he said it was the most poignant version of the song ever done. As far as Bowie goes, there was this weird sort of copyright thing. It was on YouTube, it was off YouTube. What was yeah. that all about? Oh, well, it, it's, it's his creation, it's not mine. You have to get permission, of course, to make a video. And they were, it, the, it's a legal organization, of course. They were gracious enough to let us put it up for a year, and then we forgot, and a year went by. So we had to take it down, get new permission. They gave us permission to put it up for another couple of years. So it's just, it's just the process. You're performing at Massey Hall in Toronto, you're in Vancouver. Vancouver, you've got orchestras behind you. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about the evolution of Chris Hadfield, stage performer. Well, I, I you know, I, as an astronaut, I spoke in schools uh, and organizations, even at the UN, through the whole 21 years I was with, with the space agency. And how do you not just keep the experience to yourself? How do you let people, as many young people, see it and think about it and make it part of their lives? And so I work with schools all the time. I teach at the University of Waterloo. I'm hosting a uh, science and comedy show at Massey Hall on the 28th called Generator. I sing with, uh, as you say, with the Vancouver Symphony. I'll be at Wee Day out there as well. To me, it is all just part of the same thing. How do you not uh, be jealous with this experience? How do you let people see it and, and think about it and maybe make different decisions with options that are open to them in their lives? So at the end of the conversation, I had mentioned that my daughter played guitar, and he said, so she's she's a musician. I said, well, you know, I'm trying to get her back in, in, into the guitar, but she's the kind of kid who, if she's not good at something right away, it's like pulling teeth, getting her to, to put the effort into it. And he said, well, maybe this will help. And he pulls out of his pocket a Chris Hadfield guitar pick. <laughs> and all I could think was... There's no way I'm giving this to my kid. She won't respect this in any way, shape, or form. She won't appreciate it. No, I don't think so. I'm going to keep it until she does. Well, good. Put it away someplace safe, and then eventually the kid, when she reaches 14 or 15 years old, will discover her guitar, and you'll be able to pull this thing out of the cupboard and say, honey, I've been saving this for this moment. So if you want to hear the full interview, go to bnn.ca or go to Geeks and Beats. We've got it up there as well. A lot of space-related news this week. 
Yeah, uh, let's see. What what do we want to talk about? I'm actually really fascinated by, and this is not on the lineup, but you've probably heard about it, KIC 8462852. Okay, what's that? This is Tabby's star. And there has been some anomalous data uncovered by the Kepler Space Telescope. Now, that's the one. The Kepler Space Telescope is the one that looks for extrasolar planets. And what it does is it stares at stars for a very long time, looking for an infinitesimal amount of dimming from the light that comes out of those stars. And they can infer from that dimming that a planet of a certain size and mass is going in front of the star. And this is how they've discovered literally thousands of these extrasolar planets. And they all follow these particular um, behaviors when it comes to dimming of the light. However, when we get to KIC 842-6852, there are some really highly unusual fluctuations in the light coming from the star as measured by Kepler. So what does it tell us? Well, we don't know. And this is the fascinating thing. It could be a swarm of comets. It could be the result of a giant stellar explosion. It could be this, could be that. But some people have said, well, wait a second. Could this be indications of at least a partially constructed Dyson sphere? What's a Dyson sphere? A Dyson sphere is something that was postulated by a guy named Dyson many years ago that suggested that uh, a civilization sufficiently advanced would be able to build massive energy collectors around the sun. And that's the kind of stuff, that's the kind of energy that would allow one of these civilizations to do things that we can't even possibly imagine. I think they call it a category three or type three type civilization where you can harness the power of a star to fuel your civilization's needs. So there has been a tremendous amount of media attention about this because this unusual light curve, some say, could be signs of a Dyson sphere, ergo, activity associated with intelligent extraterrestrial life. Wikipedia reports the Dyson sphere was the creation of uh, Freeman Dyson, and in his original paper, he speculated that sufficiently advanced extraterrestrials would likely follow a similar power consumption pattern to that of us, and would eventually build their own sphere of collectors. That's what we're talking about. Right. Given the amount of energy available per square meter at a distance of 1 AU from the sun, it's possible to calculate that most known substances would be re-radiating energy in the infrared part of the spectrum. Therefore, a sphere constructed by life forms not dissimilar to us, dwelling near a sun-like star, would most likely cause an increase in the amount of infrared radiation in the star's system-emitted spectrum. So that's what Kepler's looking at. Mm-hmm. Now, we call KIC 8462852 Tabby's star after somebody named Tabitha S. Boyayen, who is a, an astronomer and postdoctoral fellow at Yale University. And she actually um, wrote a paper which investigates this weird light curve of KIC 846-852. Uh, we're going to watch this and see what happens. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. Oh, it's heating up for the Zik 2.0 headphones from Parrot. 
$400 is what you would pay uh, for these. Uh, as the company Parrot calls it, the world's most advanced headphones. I have to agree. I've had a chance to play with these headphones. And we're giving away a pair here on the big show. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, go through the raffle on the 4th of November show. But the neat thing about these uh, pair of cans is that the Zik 2.0 Bluetooth headphones have a right ear pad that's touch sensitive. So you swipe up to turn up the volume, swipe down to, to lower it. You swipe to the left for the previous track, right to the next track. But my favorite mode, and I've been talking about this all along, and I don't know why we haven't seen headphones do this sooner, street mode, which drowns out the hum of the world, but lets in sounds like that moving company guy shouting, hey, watch out for that falling piano. One of the things I really worry about over the ear headphones, or any kind of headphones, as a matter of fact, when I'm out walking the dog, and it's it's up too loud because maybe I'm listening back to the podcast to see what mistakes you've made, or uh, I'm listening to, to music really, really loud, and... Uh, there have been a couple of times I've stepped off a curb because I've been in my zombie state and almost hit by a truck. So this would be a lifesaver. So the only way you can win them is by being a member of the world's worst intern program. What makes it the worst is you have to pay us to work on the show at least $1 an episode. You don't actually do anything, so it's just like a Hollywood internship. But you can also be a co-producer on the show. So in addition to the $1 that you donate per episode that becomes a raffle ticket, if you are a co-producer who has donated 25 bucks for the show, we will give you 25 raffle tickets. We have a pair of co-producers for this week's show. James White and Jeff Berwick. So thank you very much for supporting the big show. You each get 25 tickets put in the virtual bin. I thought that Jeff put in 50. Well, he wants next week to be a member of the world's worst intern program slash co-producer. All right. So he's on the installment plan. He is. He is. And and Jeff actually messaged us uh, through our phone number, 323-319-NERD, to say that as a blind guy, it was almost impossible for him to support the show because when you go to the uh, support the show link and you enter all your Patreon information, there's a CAPTCHA oh, no. that doesn't work for those who cannot see. There, is, there isn't a, um, a little thing that you can press on that actually says it out loud? Not not on the not on the Geeks and Beats contact page either, uh, where you have to prove you're not a robot. So he just picked up the phone and called me. So I called him back and we got it all straightened out. So thank you so much for supporting the big show. Well, that was nice bit of effort there. I mean, Jeff really wanted to get this done. He, he took it to the next level. Good for him. C- c- can you tell from the Tito's handmade vodka that I'm already slurring my words? <laughs> this is a, this is quite the beverage you've got me hooked up to. It is. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Is if you're going to get something mm. domestic, that's what you get. Now, uh, as part of our Geeks and Beats update, we've got something else as well. So again, support the show. You could win these headphones. You could swing by and say hello, by the way, because we will be live on location at the Toronto Downtown Record Show November 1st. <laughs> This is at the Estonian Hall on Broadview, north of Danforth. We were there the last couple of years. A lot of people came out to say hi. We'll uh, sort things out so we have a little table in one of the rooms so we can do the show live. And if you want to come and see how the sausages are made, which are really, really dull, but it gives us an opportunity to do something kind of cool and kind of different and maybe get out there with some of the folks. And uh, if you want to have one of your Miracle Travel Mugs of Traveling signed or something like that, we would be happy to do that. We should probably get some swag that we can give away or sell, shouldn't we? We'll have a, several of the show's contributors down as well, a few of them swinging by, and maybe we'll do sort of man on the street, what are you looking for? Uh, when you go down to a record show, what are you looking for? I'm looking for, th- I, I have a list of uh, Holy Grail records. Uh, I've only really found two of the ten that are on my record on my list, but mostly I'm looking for rare uh, seven inches. I'm looking for some imported 
um, albums or, or 12 inches that uh, have long been out of print. And occasionally what I'll do is I'll get the 180 gram vinyl of something that uh, I really, really want. You can also get some swag down there, too. They've got memorabilia, too. Yeah. You know, there was a guy who came to my house last year and cleaned up the basement. <laughs> I had a lot of magazines and a lot of duplicate records. And uh, these guys just came in, loaded up a couple of trucks and took it all away. And uh, that stuff that's been selling at record shows over the greater Toronto area for the last couple of years. So if you want to make a date of it, uh, we will be there Sunday, November 1st at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at 958 Broadview Avenue. It's the Estonian House Banquet Hall. It's uh, near the Don Valley Parkway. If you're uh, a Torontonian, you know that. Uh, just north of the Danforth, just south of uh, Pottery Road. So swing by the, the Dairy Queen there on the corner and pick us something up on your way down. Admissions, five bucks. The parking's free. But uh, you might have some trouble finding parking in the back if you're not early. It tends to be a, a rather busy situation there. By the way, yes, I'm actually tearing back from Winnipeg uh, the night before. I have to go out to Winnipeg Friday night for an event. Now, here's what's going on. What Rocky Horror Picture Show is to the rest of the world, Phantom of the Paradise is to Winnipeg. What is Phantom of the Paradise? See, this is my point. Phantom of the Paradise is a 1974 musical, let's call it that, uh, a film that was directed by Brian De Palma and written by Paul Williams. Life and death, salutations from the other side. I can see that you're the devil's pride. Do you realize that all of you don't have some hope? Do you hate that we're part of you? I'm your nightmares coming true. I am your crowd. It became a huge, huge phenomenon in Winnipeg and nowhere else. The movie was an entire giant bomb. But if you look on so online and you enter, enter uh, Winnipeg and Phantom of the Paradise, you'll find all these articles that show, that document how weirdly successful this movie was in this one city in the world. So every once in a while, they have something called Phantom Palooza. They're having it uh, in Winnipeg on October the 30th this year. My sister is playing in the house band, so I thought I'd go and check it out. That's very nice of you. It is, isn't it? And then I have to be back here at the house in time for the monsters coming in Saturday night for Halloween, and then i got to go see you the following morning. Geeks and Beats updates on uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I had been looking through this list uh, of nominees, and I had put my money down on the cars and was mocking the fact that Chicago was included because of its corporate rock background. But they're the ones who are winning at 23.5% of the vote. One, two. Chicago cars, yes. I laughed at you when you said the cars. Look on good times You weren't alone. A lot of people on Twitter laughed at me as well. You know what one suggestion was? Get the yes out of there and put Billy Idol in. That's true. Nobody's ever really nominated him. But these are fan votes. You can vote early, vote often, right? Right. Yes. Vote early, vote often, and they will be weighted as the old boys club sees fit when it comes to the final voting. Right. So if you're like me, and I know I am, you'll go to geeksandbeats.com and cast your vote for the cars as well. Got a question about music, love, that suspicious rash? Ask Alan anything. Call 323-319-NERD. Let's play ball. Okay, okay, Blue Jays, Blue Jays, let's set 
So on the uh, the day after your Toronto Blue Jays made it into the American League Championship Series, I tweeted a photo of me wearing a gray suit with a black tie, stating that I was wearing black to mourn the Toronto Blue Jays win and the death of conversation of every other topic. <laughs> Got hauled into the boss's office saying, people will think you're a putz. Stop making fun of sports. Productivity in Canada equals zero. I mean, it really did come down to, to nothing. There was nothing going on. <laughs> it's been a long time since Toronto had any kind of a hope of winning something. So you can understand why the city is losing its mind. My prediction is the Cubs will win the 2015 World Series. You know why I know that? I am going to guess that you're going to tie this into Back to the Future somehow. Hey, Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey, Marty! Marty! Marty, I wanted to show you these new matchbooks for my auto detailing. I had printed up. DeLorean? What the hell is going on here? It was prophesized in the trilogy. In uh, Back to the Future 2, right? Geeks and Beats writer Matt Smith has put together a collection of home run hits for the Toronto Blue Jays. So that if you can't make it to one of the games... By all means, just crank up the tunes. Number five on the list, Our Blue Jays by The Biggs and Barr Show. Oh, Jason used to work for me. Uh, Jason Biggs or Jason Barr? Jason Barr, yes. Okay, so they've got what is clearly a, a parody type song here. Hmm. First Place by Adam Jessen. Don't know him. Never worked for me. Okay, Blue Jays by Keith Hampshire and the Bat Boys. That's the original from 1983. And Matt points out that it was approved by Blue Jays executive Paul Beeston in 83, um, which is the one that's usually used during the seventh inning stretch for every Blue Jays home game. Correct. Oh, I didn't make it to the last seventh inning stretch when I took Wifey off to a Jays game. We had third row along the first baseline. And you left early? We left after the fifth inning. Why? Well, it was too hot for her and she was bored. Oh. The funny thing, though, is that we're friends with the uh, stadium announcer. Hmm. And and I, did you ever play this game in your radio career, uh, the word game, where you, you have somebody give you a word and you have to incorporate that somehow into your next, the next time you turn on the microphone? No. We threw a line, we threw a line at Tim Langton, the stadium announcer, saying, okay, 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 throw this word into your next introduction. And he said, all right, that's coming up, it's coming up. And she up and left before we had a chance to hear him actually play the game. He actually sent me a tweet. So, what'd you think? I'm like, ah, oh, we're already standing at the corner of King and Blue Jay's Way. We're looking for a streetcar. What was the word? Indefatigable. Wow. Yes. Good for him. Oh, yeah. Number two on the list. Hooked on a Feeling by Blue Suede. In a f no, no. Blue Swede. Blue Swede. Swede? Blue Swede. It's because I don't know anything about this. Uh, apparently, this was in Guardians of the Galaxy, though. Yes, it was. It was an absolute. It was an integral part of the film and a big part of the soundtrack. Ah, 
right at the beginning there. And it was one of those tracks on the cassette tape that his mother gave him before he was abducted by the aliens. Exactly. And that soundtrack became absolutely huge mostly on the back of Blue Swedes Hooked on a Feeling. I had no idea Radio Shack was intergalactic. Where did Chris Pratt get the AA batteries for that Walkman? <laughs> I don't know. My Circuit City, my my uh, uh, Radio Shack by Circuit City, or whatever they were called, closed this week. Oh, the Source by Circuit City. The Source by Circuit City, yeah. Which it, was it, bought it, up by BCE, Bell. Yeah, it's gone. It, uh, it, it, it disappeared this week. And of course, number one on the list, Come Together by the Beatles. One thing I can tell you you got to be free Come together Right now Over me There is a situation here with a band called Blimp Rock. They're from Toronto. They wrote a baseball song a couple of years ago in which they used the phrase Come Together. And they are currently asking the Blue Jays for $700,000 in royalties because they say the Blue Jays infringed upon their copyright. Now, this is this is pretty much just a joke. Good for Blimp Rock for, for doing this. But they want $700,000 because they have this dream of holding a rock concert on a blimp floating over Lake Ontario. And they think the budget for that will be about $700,000. I don't think they thought their cunning plan all the way through. Well, I don't think so either, because if they look at the phrase come together i mean we can look at the beatles we can look at primal scream we can look at a bunch of other bands but they say because they tied come together to baseball specifically the toronto blue jays in 2012 long before the hashtag come together came came about uh, they say that uh, mm, you know you owe us some money it sort of segues nicely into the fact that the happy birthday trial isn't over no this is rather interesting you would expect that warner chapel would fight this uh let's just go back and, and re, re uh, revisit this Happy Birthday was written in the 1890s by a couple of sisters in Kentucky through some really weird and shoddy registration issues from that point on until 1935. The ownership of the song ended up in the hands of publishing giant Warner Chapel, and it stayed in the hands of Warner Chapel for decades after that. Every time you played or performed Happy Birthday in public, Warner Chapel was owed a royalty, and they made about five or six million dollars U.S. per year collecting royalties on Happy Birthday. Then there was a film, a documentary, that sought to explain why a song that should have long been put into the public domain was not in the public domain yet. And there was a court case, and the best possible outcome was that the judge declared that Happy Birthday, as described and owned by Warner Chapel, was no longer protected under copyright and therefore became part of the public domain. So fantastic end to this film. However, uh, the Warner Chapel's lawyers say that the judge made an error of judgment. And it has to do with the fact that the judge says that only one particular instrumental piece of Happy Birthday is owned by Warner Chapel. Every other instrumental with vocals and lyrics piece is now in the public domain. So they're going to appeal this, and, and we'll see where this where this ends up. This is right up the alley of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It is so complicated, and it's so filled with 
twists and turns. Well, things are about to get a heck of a lot worse as the TPP is approved by the the 12 some odd countries, including Canada and the United States. Okay, you want to talk about the the copyright issues that they've got going on here? Well, that's the thing is because it's not just about, you know, we can sell the world more beef and they can sell us more widgets. The plan under the TPP extends the copyright term to the lifetime of the creator plus 70 years after their death as a minimum. By example, the current U.S. Copyright Act is 70 years maximum. The TPP sets it as a minimum. So you could see 140 years worth of protection for something that under the previous administration and terms, shortly after people died, you could in fact uh, use that in any way, shape, or form. Happy birthday would have been a prime example of that. But and this has this has Disney's fingerprints all over it, because Disney has been the company that's been pushing for extension of copyright ever since Mickey Mouse threatened to come out of copyright and into the public domain. So this is an American push. It's an American push, and it's a push that hasn't been getting a heck of a lot of attention because we're all so focused on such things as the trade side of things, let alone the copyright side of things. This, this will lead podcasts such as ours to be limited as to how much we can play because stuff that we would normally be able to play because somebody's been dead for 50 years. Well, nope, not anymore. It is not necessarily in the best interests of educators, of fair use, of of any of these things. Like 140 years after the fact, really? 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 Are you familiar with the Irma Gerd meme? I saw this for the very first time this past week. Irma Gerd, Gershbump. I, <laughs> I laughed and laughed and laughed because how did this possibly escape me? Boingboing.net has this great piece about Maggie Goldenberger. You may have seen this meme photo making the rounds. Uh, Gershbump, Irma Gerd, my favorite Birch. And it's basically a 13-year-old girl with big pigtails and railroad track braces holding up her favorite books, looking like a total nerd. And she's been uh, hunted down, and they found out that it turns out she was goofing on it the whole time, that that girl at 14, who's now like 21, doesn't actually look like that, never did. No, she's actually quite cute. This is, uh, Boing Boing got it from uh, a very long story in Vanity Fair. Yes. And they completely deconstruct this regard uh, meme. And it is so... It's so funny. I can't believe I've missed all this stuff. Oh, Irma Gerd is one of my all-time favorites. My nine-year-old daughter knows Irma Gerd. Maggie Goldenberger and her fourth and fifth grade uh, pals would uh, amuse themselves back long before we had digital cameras by doing wacky stuff to their hair and posing for Polaroids, holding funny objects and making weird faces, uh, according to the author at uh, Cory Doctorow over at Boing Boing. And... She stumbled across these super awkward tween moments of crazy nerding out and photographed them, posted them to the Inertron, and, you know, the rest is history. I get most of them, but I try to... I was lying in bed reading this on my, my iPad, and I'm trying to sound out some of these because they're done phonetically, I, I, I guess. And my wife... <laughs> Gets up on one elbow. What are you doing? Have you had a stroke? 
Oh, yeah. Because, because the whole in, idea behind rolling the R on it and disfiguring it is that the poor girl has got railroad tracks. Did you ever have braces? No, no. I, didn't. I had braces. What a horror show that is when you're in that most awkward and formative stage in your life. And the cutting that goes on on the inside of your mouth from the, the metal, they give you a little wax that you can you can pop around the, the, the sharp points, but it doesn't always stay. And, and you, so you end up sort of trying to talk like this so that you don't actually have to touch the railroad tracks with your teeth and your mouth and your lips. That's like Cam on Modern Family this season. I cannot stand that show. Uh, you know what? I cannot stand Cam. Cam's the reason I stopped watching that show. Cam is is fantastic. I, the, the caricature nature of the swishy homosexual is insanely offensive to me. I've got probably no right whatsoever to be insanely offended by it, uh, but it's just so over the top. And and, 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 and you can't you can't get past that. No, to no, watch I, I Sofia Vergara. I, no, no, no. Uh. The, the the boobs don't offset the. Oh, it, it, it's it's just so stereotypical, and, and it's it's so campy, and it's a caricature. If the, if he was if there was a greater dimension to that character beyond flipping out at the drop of a hat over everything, maybe I'd be able to put up with it. All right. Well, we're going to disagree on this one. Let's go back to Irma Gerd. Irma Gerd. Hey, which you know you know the, this reminds me this this has to have a connection to Shelley from South Park. Oh, Shelley from South Park. Yes. Yeah, has to. Now you all just sit there and keep your mouths shut while I go listen to my Britney Spears records. That's got to be one of the uh, origins of this. Whatever the case is, uh, good for the Ermagerd girl for... for uh, good and not so good because her real name's out there. Somebody out there found a current day photo of her and she's admitted that she was really quite offended by some of the sexist comments people were making. Well, of course. I mean, that's that's... That's a meme. You know, memes are not supposed to be bright or. Um, anyway. I'm sorry. I'm just looking at one right now. It just made me laugh. I can't repeat it, but God, this is funny. So we'll put them on the Geeks and Beats website if you're not familiar with any of this. Uh, so you can follow along and play the home game. We've got an update on a story that we've been following for a while. And it's sort of in the same vein of this is good for you. No, it's bad for you. Now it's good for you again. According to Engadget, you can't blame your phone for a poor sleep schedule, according to a new study published in Current Biology. Okay, here's why I leave my cell phone. Uh, in a room down the hall because I can hear the tweets coming. I can hear the texts coming. I can hear the bloop bloops coming from WhatsApp and where whatever else I've got turned on. And if I have it left next to me on the night, night table, I will pick it up and look at it. And that's, the, that's wrong. That's going to mess up my sleep. You do know you can put your phone on do not disturb mode for specific hours of the day. I, I know, I know. But uh, again, I just put it, you know, I, I charge it overnight and I leave it in the, in the office and that way I don't have to touch it. You and me both. I did the same thing. Uh, the uh, problem is, is that there was a recent study that concluded that if you were staring at a little blue glowing rectangle just before bedtime, it interferes with your brain's ability to shut itself down because that blue light that emanates from any screen, whether it's blue or not, is tricking your brain into thinking it's daylight and to not release the hormones and the chemicals necessary to have your brain wind down. Yeah, the melatonin. Right. Yeah, I've, I've heard this quite a bit. Do not read a tablet or a phone in the dark before bedtime 
because it messes up your chemicals. Current biology, though, uh, crunched the numbers by looking at three groups living in pre-industrial worlds today that don't have glowing rectangles, basically. Uh, a tribe in uh, northern Tanzania, uh, one in South Africa's Kalahari Desert, one in Bolivia as well. And after 1,165 days of collecting data, they concluded that the average sleep among these groups was an hour less than you and I in the Western world get at just six and a half hours a night. So what they're saying is that these glowing screens beaming into their brains via their eyes at bedtime had nothing to do with the quality of their sleep. We, in fact, while we sit there in bed looking at a glowing rectangle, still get seven and a half hours of sleep a night, whereas they, who have no access to this technology at all, sleep less than us. You sleep, so you sleep seven and a half hours a night? I probably get about six. Yeah, I, I'm probably six, six and a half. But anyway, well, good. So I won't feel bad. The next time my wife yells at me for reading uh, the tablet in bed. Well, I'm on the other side of that conversation because I've been yelling at wifey saying you're complaining about not getting a good night's sleep. Yet you sit there playing your video game, playing your Timar. <laughs> ever tell you my Timar story? No, but go ahead. So uh, she was hooked on solitaire on the, on the PC. And at the end of solitaire, when you win, there's uh, a fireworks explosion. And I learned that the fireworks explosion was actually a Windows system sound. And because it's a Windows <laughs> no. system sound, you can change it to anything you want. So I changed it to South Park's Timmy! <laughs> and then cranked it. Timmy! And waited for her to come in, sit down, and she started playing. And sure enough, she gets to the end and it goes, Timmy! And she jumps out of her chair. <laughs> Uh, but so ever since that point, any type of game that she's addicted to, we call it her Timma. <laughs> oh, I wish I could have been there to see. <laughs> I'm going to do that. So, yeah. So I'm like, well, you stop playing your Timma, which is currently Triple Town. Have you played Triple Town on the iPad or the iPhone or the Android? No. The premise behind Triple Town is really cute. It's a, a little grassy field with a bunch of trees. And the premise is, is that you, you get almost like Tetris where you would get blocks. Here you get different things, a bush, a tree, uh, or a bad guy. And what you need to do is you need to have three of one particular thing in a group such that it turns into a larger thing. So if you get three bushes, it becomes one tree. You get three trees, it becomes one house. Three houses, it becomes a mansion. And the whole premise is, is as you're running out the clock or or the spaces on the playing board, you're trying to match all of these pieces such that you play for as long as you can and your score goes up. She's hooked on that, and it is a fantastic game. See, I'm still stuck on Solitaire and Tetris. Really? What is this, 1986? Yeah, you know what? I, I, okay, Plants vs. Zombies. I, you know, I never played that one. It's okay. It's funny. Have you read about uh, Text Neck? Yes, I was waiting for this to happen. Text neck is something that has been discovered by doctors and radiologists and orthopedic surgeons. Uh, and what they they're basically blaming this curvature of the neck and spine and shoulders that they're seeing in young people on the fact that they're always hunched over their phones and tablets. Now, this is coming out of the Daily Mail, so I'm a little suspicious of it in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but a leading Australian chiropractor is warning about the dangers of text neck. Dr. James Carter says he's seen an alarming increase in teenage patients and is caused by bending over your smartphones for several hours a day. Do you, do you know how often you spend on your smartphone? How often do I spend on my smartphone? 
I no. I will tell you exactly. Go into your go into your settings on your iPhone, and under usage, there is an option that shows you X number of minutes that any particular app has consumed. Uh, for example, surprisingly, I find that I'm on Facebook a cumulative total of about 30 minutes a day on my smartphone. No kidding. I don't have my phone here, but I will look that up. It's all tied to the battery life and how much battery life is being chewed. Right. So check that out. Uh, and he says, uh, the, the doctor over in Australia, that um, over the past few years, he said 50% of the alarming increase in the number of patients are school-aged teenagers. Mm. And I can imagine that the kind of issue here is that as your body is still developing, you want it to develop the best way possible so that when you're an adult, you don't have a hunchback. Yeah, that would probably uh, be less, be a little bit more attractive. It was suggested to me hunchback is a derogatory term, kind of like midget what? versus little people. Is it? That's Somebody had suggested that to me, although I'm, I'm a little suspicious of that. Considering we don't really have a heck of a lot of hunchbacks out there to have some sort of focus group to come up with an understanding of it. I've uh, just looked at my phone here. I spend a lot of time on Drudge. Yep. I spend a lot of time on uh, a flipboard type uh, app um, news aggregator called Zite, Z-I-T-E, which is actually owned by Flipboard now. Yep. And what else do I spend time on? Oh, I seem to be uh, looking at my stocks. Okay, old man, you spend a lot of time on that Get Off My Lawn app? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.